0: Hello and welcome to our first edition of Understanding Yoga Studies. My name is Vicky Abnall. I'm an MA student here at SOAS and a member of the Centre of Yoga Studies. To start our series, we're looking at the discipline of Indology in relation to the study of yoga and I'm delighted to welcome Dr. James Mallinson to help us unpick this term and this discipline. Jim is the chair here at the Centre for Yoga Studies and Reader in Indology and Yoga Studies at SOAS uh, in the History, Religions and Philosophy Department, where he also teaches on the MA course in the Traditions of Yoga and Meditation. Going back to the start of his academic career, Jim read Sanskrit, and old Iranian, at the University of Oxford, before completing an MA at SOAS in ethnography and South Asian studies. His doctoral thesis, also completed at Oxford, was a critical edition of the Kachari Vidya, an early Hatha yoga text from the 14th century. Jim has spent several years living with Indian aesthetics and yogis, in particular the Ramanandi Tyagis, and has published numerous books, book chapters, and papers on the history of yoga in particular, the early development of Hatha Yoga. He was the co-editor of the now indispensable reference text, The Roots of Yoga, and was the lead researcher on the seminal five-year European Research Council-funded study, The Hatha Yoga Project, which was based at SOAS, and aimed to chart the history of physical yoga practice by means of philology and ethnographic fieldwork. Jim is currently the lead on a three-year project entitled Light on Hatha Yoga, which will result in a critical edition and translation of the Hatha Pradipika. In the meantime, Jim has very kindly found time to talk to us about the discipline of Indology. So welcome, Jim. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much, Vicky, for for asking me to, to talk to you.
0: So I'm going to start pretty simply. What do you understand by the term Indology and its place as an academic discipline?
1: It's a good question. Both Indology and Philology actually are quite similar in that there's no real consensus as to what they mean. Sheldon Pollock's written a lot about the discipline of Philology and his basic simple definition is making sense of texts. I think Indology could almost be understood in a similar way of making sense of India, although that's a bit sort of (laughs) glib and a bit broad. So my personal understanding, as I say, there's a certain amount of subjectivity in this. The way I see Indology is making sense of India's history and primarily through its texts. The reason for it being primarily through its texts is because often texts are the only historical sources we have. But beyond that, in order to make sense of texts, and philologists are often... Caricatured or Indologists caricatured as sort of ivory tower scholars just poring over manuscripts and not having any interest in the real world. But in fact, in order to make sense of those historical Indian texts, you really need to know the more broader cultural and historical context. So ultimately, and what I what I do here, actually, I mean, I you gave a sort of brief resume of my academic career, and I think so firmly in the Indological camp in that I've drawn on various different methods, but primarily textual study, in order to try to make sense of the, the history of India. And in that, I my my primary training was from my supervisor in Oxford for my PhD, Professor Alexis Anderson, who is a sort of Indologist par excellence. And he's written a, a wonderful article demonstrating how Indology is used to understand India's history. And it's called History through textual criticism. But what he says, I and mean, he's writing about the understanding of or the practice of, of text criticism, i.e., You know, reading texts closely and trying to make sense of them. He says the training of the textual critic is nothing less than the intimate study of the civilization that produced and understood the documents he confronts. Nor can that study, i.e., of Indian uh, historical civilization, proceed without textual criticism, since that is the art of reading the documents which are its richest and most numerous witnesses. So, just to summarize again, I'd say that Indology is trying to understand India's history using whatever methods, sources are available, but those are primarily textual, so Indologists primarily study texts.
0: So it's closely intertwined with philology as a methodology, in in
1: your view? Absolutely, yes, yes.
0: And and did you find when you were, because your early studies were in Sanskrit and, uh, you know, the start of your academic career, your BA was in Sanskrit and Old Iranian and did you after that feel a bit of a frustration like you wanted to go into the field as well to sort of match up the textual study with with actually being in, in the place and understanding the culture more broadly?
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I did. I found that I mean, the so that my undergraduate degree at Oxford was a, a wonderful grounding in that it gave a very thorough and broad uh, instruction in Sanskrit, but it wasn't there wasn't much engagement with sort of lived tradition or, you know, there's no real emphasis on ethnography or anything like that. So yes, as a result, I then chose to do an MA at SOAS, which, in which the major was ethnography. But ultimately, I returned to, to Sanskrit and textual criticism as my sort of primary method of study.
0: And in terms of material culture, I think you've worked before with Deborah Diamond, for example, do you think that's also a sort of valuable interdisciplinary matching when we're looking at, at cultures such as India?
1: Absolutely. Yes. I mean, uh, as I said, you, we need to just use everything we can because ours, we're so limited often, particularly at the early history of, of yoga, for example, or the physical yoga, hatha yoga that I've concentrated on. In the early period there's only a handful of texts and then there's material sources there's a few there are some texts also in languages other than sanskrit so it's useful to, to develop skills in in more languages but yes material culture is useful although for this early period in fact it's almost more more useful because of its absence so the period that i study i've studied recently most closely so from about a 1000 to 1500 ce uh, we have only a couple of of historical sites where we see depictions of of hatha yoga being practiced and then it starts to proliferate after that so i think that kind of supports what we see in the text that this is a the notion that this is a an innovation in the indian religious scene because we we start seeing it appearing in texts and then also in the material record about the same time but absolutely they complement each other and of course the material sources, our historical sources, are really good at reminding us as well that our textual sources aren't everything. You know, there's, there's the proverbial, proverbial kind of Mickey take of, of pundits, of scholars in India, of, of Brahmin scholars being like frogs in a well, looking up from a well and that think, thinking that their view of the sky is, is everything. And in fact of course there's a whole lot more going on and we must remember that when we're studying our text but at the same time that's not to denigrate textual study in that often it's the only material we have but yes our text sorry our material sources often just in the context of, of yoga show us yoga postures that are not taught in text so that you know it's pretty clear that that's really very much reminding you that there was other stuff going on that we can't can't discover from, from reading text
0: and is there I guess you've you've Mentioned Professor Sanderson already. Are there some Indologists that you feel have shaped the field of yoga studies?
1: I mean, it's a, bit, it's a somewhat neglected field in that uh, the Indological the side of yoga studies and that it hasn't really been the, the focus of sustained scholarship. There are exceptions. It was Dr. I always get, get the father and son mixed up, but I think it's Manmat Ghorote was the, the father from the who uh, was at Kaivalya Dham. Yoga Research Institute in Lonavala, in Maharashtra. And he did. He and his team around him did have done a wonderful job or did a wonderful job of producing critical editions of Sanskrit texts on yoga from manuscripts. There, there was a French scholar called Christian Bouy, who he produced a monograph in the early 90s, 1994, Les Nata Yoga et les Upanishads, or Les Yoga Upanishad. Uh, he was perhaps the first scholar really to look at the corpus as an in terms of intertextuality, you know, showing that the the Yoga Upanishads that were produced in the late late second millennium, like seventeenth eighteenth century, borrowed wholesale from earlier Hatha Yoga texts. So then you know you start seeing the the borrowings going on, and that intertextuality is a crucial aspect of textual study of of all traditions, but in the history of yoga, of course, as well, because by seeing who borrows from what, you really get a, a picture of of many things, you know. Not just the the evolution of the practice, but also the networks of of scholarship and so forth. So this is really useful identifying parallels between texts, and also for dating texts as well. Obviously, you know that if text A borrows from text B, then text A is is more recent than than text B. So the, a lot of our work uh, focuses on that. Um, other scholars, so Professor Sanderson, of course, his work was on is has been on is on still going on Tantra more broadly understood, but he's done some important work on on Yoga within that. Another of his uh, former students, Professor Dominic Goodall at the EFEO in Pondicherry, he's done some important work on Yoga in Shiva Tantra. Another of uh, Alexis's uh, former students, Professor Somdev Vasudeva, again has written on Yoga in Tantra. Who else? Yeah, the Adyar Library in India, in the early 20th century, produced some useful uh, editions of the Yoga of Upanishads. So there was, it was um, Professor who was the name of the editor of the series. Uh, Philip Mars of current, Dr. Philip Mars of current current scholars has done been doing excellent work on the Patanjali Yoga Shastra. But it's it's been an understudied area of Indology. And so I've, in that respect, I find myself, I feel quite lucky in that you know I was in, interested in this and there it was all waiting to be looked at more um, closely. in particular, the texts of hatha yoga, so the texts of physical yoga practice. As I said, really before I, so for my PhD, as you mentioned, was a critical edition of a text called the Ketri Vidya. And I chose, I identified that text through um, Christian Bui's, reading Christian Bui's monograph. It was really at that point, that was the only good sort of solidly grounded survey of the texts of, of Hatha Yoga. So yeah, Hatha Yoga uh, scholarship is, I'd say, in, not really in its infancy anymore. Recent decades have seen good advances. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a new field. It's a new field of Indological uh, study, really.
0: And prior to that, why do you think it might have been understudied?
1: Uh, well, for similar reasons, I suppose that uh, Tantra too has been relatively understudied. I mean, it, there had been there was the Kashmiri series of texts and studies over a hundred years old that produced editions of tantric texts. But really, after that, it was you know it's sort of seen as a bit by some a bit debased and perhaps not not scholarly enough. Of course, that's completely not the case. In, in fact, with with tantra, in that the, particularly the Kashmiri exegetes such as Abhinavagupta, Ramakanta, and so forth produced incredibly uh, rich philosophical treatises based on Tantra tradition so there's there's everything there for a uh, for the most kind of um you know ivory tower textual scholar to get their teeth into one can't really say the same for hatha yoga to be honest in that the texts that there isn't really a very rich philosophical or even a rich exegetical by which i mean you know commentarial tradition associated with there's a, there's a bit but nothing like what we see in, in tantra so that's probably one of the reasons in that you know these fairly weird practices. There's some quite, you know, the the emphasis in a lot of the texts is on practices that nowadays are not sort of seen as particularly iconic or, you know, particularly important in yoga practice. But in order to make sense of the Hatha Yoga text, you have to deal with some fairly obscure practices that probably has put off scholars in the past and yeah i mean yogis had a bit of a bad name as well particularly hatha yogis as a as an element of that too they're seen as sort of fairly crazy wild wild uh, creatures doing these these uh, unusual practices so that might have put people off as well i think so we're
0: still battling some of those sort of limited understandings that perhaps existed in the
1: past yeah i guess i think i think we can i think to some extent we've put that behind us now one got got beyond that. I mean, and I, you, well, I can't even really necessarily say it's an Orientalist view. You know, there are sometimes criticisms of Indology more broadly from that angle, but also, you know, one might might think that, oh, the the sort of puritanical attitudes towards tantra and yoga are a, a Western thing, but that's not true. Of course, we find that within the Indian tradition itself as well, so it's... Uh, it's, it's 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 everywhere this some, occasionally somewhat snooty attitude towards these things.
0: One question i had was whether indology as an academic field has differences across the world like is there a different understanding of what that means say in different locations across europe or the the globe more broadly in india and do those differences in understanding or histories of scholarship in those locations impact you know, understandings and scholarship
1: mm. today? Yeah, that's a good question. Yes, I think to some extent they do. One can see a contrast nowadays. Um, I, unfortunately, there isn't a lot of really top level Indological scholarship going on in India at the moment. I mean, there has been over the 20th century. There were plenty of brilliant, brilliant Indologists uh, who produced indispensable works that you know indologists today are constantly referring to and they they practiced in the same way as what i would call more the european tradition of indology which is more text not just text focused but uh focusing on the critical editing of text as well so that's when you you know so what i did for my phd was with the country video is find all the manuscripts of the text that i could and then you compare them and you try to work out and the earliest form of the text that you can identify and then chart its evolution over time. You know, when people have changed it for ideological reasons, sometimes that happens or sometimes just through mistakes, but it's really important in order for understanding the history of, of a tradition. And similarly, in the same way, as I mentioned earlier, intertextuality and borrowings between texts are really useful for for charting developments within a tradition. And so the European tradition of Indology which to a great extent was predicated upon classical understandings of textual criticism, you know, that developed from the 18th century onwards that has more of a focus on text criticism than that of the U S recent decades in particular, there's been a somewhat move away from text critical scholarship in the U S although I, I proudly announced that I've been, I mean, I, I, I hope that in our, you know, I work with the Hatha yoga project in particular, you know, because Nowadays, humanity's more broadly understood, and Indology and so forth is definitely under threat. You know, chairs of Indology and so forth have been cut back a lot across Europe and also in America. But we've been able to show recently the value of this text critical work in tracing the history of yoga. I mean, I think we're lucky in that, of course, there's this sort of broader interest in yoga itself. So our findings are of interest to a you know a wider audience than would normally be interested in, in the logical publications and so forth but i've been involved recently with a, a grant proposal with professor shaman hatley at the university of boston which he's been successful to do a critical edition of a yoga text called the yoga chintamani and i think that's the first you know it's been funded by the neh so the big the national endowment for the humanities and the states and i think that's the first sort of sanskrit critical editing project Ever, I don't know, certainly for many, many decades. I mean, until recently, or even now still, um, for PhD students, for example, in the States are told not to do critical editions because it will harm their career prospects. So there is definitely a cultural difference between the States and, and Europe. In terms of going back to the, the, just the very word Indology as well, you'll find that it's not, you know, there are no chairs of Indology in the UK. I don't know if there are any in the US, but there are lots in Germany and then across the continent more broadly as well, Germany in particular. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't necessarily reflect a difference in practice. That's just sort of terminology.
0: Which can be cu- confusing, I guess, as you're trying to navigate all these different departments and locations and understand what's what's going on there.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh,
0: your your point on creating a critical edition was interesting because you're going through that process at the moment i understand for the hatha yoga pradipika project
1: yes indeed Yeah. so we've similarly got another i mean i think yeah i'm sort of hopeful that work that i've done with colleagues jason virch mark singleton and in, in recent years has because it's demonstrated the usefulness of this kind of scholarship in establishing the history we've obviously focused on yoga has meant that it's you know now getting easier to to raise funding for such projects. And so we've got a, a new, project start, new project started at the beginning of this year, jointly between SOAS and the University of Marburg. So I'm leading the SOAS side. We've got Jason Birch on the, on the team here. And then at Marburg is uh, Professor Jürgen Haneda, who's a professor of Indology. He's, you know, his chair is in Indology. And we are working on a critical edition of the Hutt of which is very important written probably early 15th century, a very important text that, and going back to this point I've made a couple of times already about intertextuality, we know that it borrows from at least 20 Different texts, so that complicates trying to make sense of it. Well, it complicates, and also it um, makes it easier as well because, you know, what I should also say is there are at least two hundred and fifty manuscripts of the text of the Hatha Pradipika. It's mind-boggling, you know. And so, one of our main jobs at the moment is trying to work out, you know, a way to hack a path through that forest of, of manuscripts and how we can eliminate ones that are not going to be useful and how to identify the most useful one. So, a lot of the texts that um, hatha pradipika borrows from significantly we've been editing as part of the hatha yoga project so now we've kind of identified their original form so knowing that then makes it easier to establish uh, what was going on with the hatha pradipika you know if we know what the text should have been like when it was borrowed from 600 years ago and that can help us eliminate manuscripts you know where they've got it wrong can say well that's obviously further down the line the ones that have got it spot on then we know that they're pretty close to the source but that's just one aspect of a huge job i mean that, not only the 250 manuscripts but the the length of the text varies hugely we have different recensions we have some have three chapters four chapters five chapters six chapters ten chapters and then those chapters themselves vary a lot so yeah it's a bit of a headache but uh we'll get there we'll produce we will you know we've already made lots of good discoveries but i mean the uh, what we, we're having weekly reading sessions just to sort of you know, highlight the way that this sort of work actually proceeds beyond broader discussions about how, what manuscripts we're going to use and so forth. At the moment, we have a working edition based on the seven or eight oldest manuscripts. So that's anything from the 17th century or earlier. So we're reading that to make sense of it. But we'll often in two hours, you know, only read three or four verses, three or four two-line verses, because you just have to, you know, try to make sense of every single word and then look at all the variants. There's it's it's slow process, and we're lucky. You know, it's very lucky to have got the funding to that gives us the both the team. We've got a brilliant team because the Marburg side are really Jürgen in particular, Professor Haneda. You know, he's worked a lot on just and written a lot on the process of text editing, and then Jason and I, are, you know, got expertise in um, the, the yoga side of stuff. So that makes a you know, it's a good good team, and it's good that we've got this. The funding that gives us the time to to read the text slowly because that's really the only way you properly make sense.
0: On the process of doing a task like that, one question that comes to mind is what changes you've witnessed within the field and how you study, and particularly, I suppose, in relation to you know, has technology made any changes to how you look at these texts? You know, when you're comparing two hundred and fifty versions. Of manuscripts or texts, is, is there ways that that process has been supported or improved by, by new technologies that you have available to you, or is or not really?
1: It has definitely, I mean, of course just sort of going right back to the basics these days of grant applications digital humanities is a real buzzword so it's pretty you know key if you're doing any of these projects you have to get some of that stuff in there and some of it is fantastic you know some of the ways you know we've now got a we've reached sort of holy grail that i've been um, searching for 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 years and it was finally it's arrived i have to say thanks to the the german side of the team are really putting this together where you can have one input file for your critical edition and it depending on what you do with it. It will either produce a beautiful PDF for a for a book you want to publish, or it will produce an amazing online edition. And the online edition is really good in that you've got a lot more options. So, like I said, with the Hatha Pratipika, we have this problem of at least six or seven different recensions of the text, not just the verses reading differently, but the whole structure and length and everything's quite different. So, with an online method of displaying that kind of material, you can you can do that obviously with it, and you can you, with a, you can just sort of highlight different bits or click on different parts of the menu and that will show you the different recensions. It's a lot harder to do that uh, with a printed book in a way that is easy for the reader to, to take on board all the information. There's other, I mean, one of the big I think one of the well, you know, one of the, the thing I use every day, obviously there's, there's wonderful typesetting software as well. So you can produce a beautiful looking critical edition where all the variants and all the manuscripts are below the body of the main text. And the thing I, I mean, I use that every day, but the thing I think has really revolutionized into study has been the availability of digital transcripts of texts. So I now have gigabytes, I think probably of just text. From obviously the, the obvious texts like the Mahabharata and the Ramayana and the Vedas and the Upanishads, and that to to now we've got tons and tons of much more obscure tantric texts, and in fact, at some point we've now got about seventy-five yoga texts prepared as as digital transcripts, which we haven't yet made public because it's a bit slow to get around to that. But as a result, have this huge. Database just on your laptop, and you can search for any obscure term or word or even phrases, and this helps in a understanding. You know, if, if you're not quite sure why a word has been used in a text, then you can instantly bring up ten or twenty other instances of it and see how it's used in other texts. So that will help you. You can also it's also really useful for identifying parallels, seeing where one text is borrowed from another. I mean, that's just fantastically helpful. So I think for me, that's the aspect that. Uh, revolutionized things the most. I think we have to be slightly wary of, you know, sometimes using these digital tools, there's so much you can do, there's so much possibility, but perhaps sometimes people perhaps go too far down that road, you know.
0: You still need to read the original texts and manuscripts to start with
1: yeah and people get really i mean it's i mean it's amazing for sort of corpus linguistics and stuff like that, but you get some people who are advocates of transcribing every last feature of a manuscript, you know which normally if you're editing a text, you might skip over things because they don't actually have any bearing on what the what the text what the author's trying to say or what the scribe had written you yeah, know so you can generate a huge amount of data like that i'm I'm somewhat skeptical, I think perhaps some of the the work hours involved in doing that could be more used more profitably.
0: And is there an online resource that you would recommend to interested interested students that, you know, some of these digitised versions, are they publicly accessible anywhere that you would
1: point yes. people to? Yeah, there's lots of good online resources. There's one, we're looking for digital editions online. There's one that's been put up by Charles Lee called uh, Saktum Iva S-A-K-T-U-M-I-V-A dot org, I think. And there's an Another by Andrew Ollitt, his edition of the Padma, well, in Sanskrit be Padmavati, but in its Prakrit edition, of Padmavai. And then there are other, there's a big resource put together by Professor Dominic Riastic, who's been running the Indology mailing list for decades now. But these, there's also a Indology.info, which has a huge amount of resources there from online collections of, of transcripts of text to scans of manuscript catalogues or online manuscript libraries and so forth so that's that's pretty useful
0: we'll include some links to those in the uh, edition that goes out online that's fantastic final question so i don't take up any more of your time is what your tips or what your advice would be for any students or independent scholars looking to delve further into this field and to study india or perhaps yogic you know, traditions of india in this field?
1: I think, well, in terms of Indology, there's nothing more useful than spending as much time as possible reading texts, preferably reading with reading them, you know, with someone who's more expert than you are. We just like with anything, if you want to get good at something, see if you can spend as much time as, as possible with the, the people who are really good at it. Of course, that's slightly tricky these days in that universities are really cutting back on the opportunities to do that. Sort
0: of not as many opportunities, it seems, to do
1: those kind no. of reading room setups. No, No, so at SOAS it's, that's done more out of the formal structure of, of taught modules and so mm-hmm. forth, so we have little reading groups that aren't. I and mean, that's almost the best way of doing it as well, but it's not building up towards some exam or something like that. You're just sitting there reading the text for the, for the sake of doing it. So that is what I would recommend. I would also say if anyone is sort of a budding yoga studies indologists, I think there, I mean, of course, Sanskrit is always going to be extremely useful, but there's, there's definitely some interesting material out there in vernacular languages such as Marathi and Canada and Telugu and some in Old Hindi as well. But yeah, sort of, they, I think those perhaps, Marathi in particular, I have a feeling is going to be a really interesting field for future Research into the early history of Hatha Yoga, in particular, my area of expertise. Reading, reading, reading texts is the is the way forward to improve your skills. Yeah.
0: Well, on that note, I'm going to go and uh, practice <laughs> Sanskrit and uh, and thank you for your time, Jim. Thank you.
1: Not at all. Thanks. That was fun.